0: Welcome to the Storycraft Cafe. Did you know that we have a social media site just for writers? You can find it at storycraft.cafe. You can meet other storycrafters that share the same hopes, dreams, struggles, and victories as you do. Join in the daily writing challenges, see when a new author interview is coming up, and join in the conversation and fun. Again, that's storycraft.cafe. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave us a review if you don't mind. It helps others find us. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'll drop a link in the show notes so you can find it easily. You can join me live as I conduct these author interviews, and you too can join in the conversation live as it happens. Our guest today is Dwyer Murphy, whose new book, The Stolen Coast, is a great mashup of a number of genres and we talk all about it on today's show from mystery to noir to real life seeping into fiction this is a mashup of so much fun stuff I know you're gonna love this book as much as I did now on to our interview with Dwyer Murphy And we are live now in the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited uh, to have a guest with me. I've been looking forward to, uh, to this episode all week. Uh, Dwyer Murphy joins me to talk about his brand new book, The Stolen Coast. And I forgot to ask you before we started uh, recording, Dwyer, this came out a couple of days ago uh, to the public, right?
1: That's right. It came out on Tuesday, so this is all quite quite new and exciting. But yeah, thank you for having me.
0: This is a gift. Ab- worth- Absolutely, I'm super excited to to have this chat with you. Um, the Stolen Coast. I I have been thinking about um how to introduce this book, how to talk about it. Um, it is all of the things that I love about great literature, um, but none of the easy to point to. Um, things. And I'll, I'll qualify what I mean by that. You know, we talk in, in writing and publishing a lot about genre and especially in adult fiction, you know, it's, uh, it's very important to know where you fit because uh, you know, when you're, when you're describing your book to someone, you want to tell them where to go in the bookstore to find it. And, you know, we have these very carefully categorized you know, shelves. We've got science fiction over here. We've got fantasy usually next to it, but distinguished. And then we've got, you know, crime reads over here and we've got mystery and we've got romance. And, and, and this book, The Stolen Coast kind of could fit on a lot of different shelves. And that's one of my favorite things uh, about books is when you have something that can have, you know, a leg in, in a lot of different buckets and you wind up with an eight legged book. Um, but the stolen coast, a wonderful read. Um, I think it's the perfect summer read because you know, when you just want to have a a lazy afternoon when it's hot and you don't feel like doing anything else, you just disappear into the story. And it was one of those kind of books for me. So, uh, Anyway, I I said all that to say, um, I love the book, Dwyer. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And
1: I'm glad that I, I also like the kind of book that sort of could appear on a few different shelves there. And I think that was, you know, it was something that we were thinking about as after the book was written. I guess when I am when I was writing the book, I didn't give a great deal of thought to, to the genre parameters or what shelf it would be on. But afterwards, it did bring up quite a bit of discussion and it was sort of fun to sort through the various possibilities there.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Um, a fun question that I like to ask people uh, sometimes to get the conversation going, um, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That is a good question. I think I was...
1: Uh, I remember being a kid growing up in Massachusetts and I was sort of an obsessive reader of sports books. And my father had this strategy that I think worked quite well where I I would just kind of gobble up any book that had to do with sports. And so he just gradually began to put more adult titles onto my bookshelf without, without really distinguishing between Like these mass-produced Matt Christopher books about baseball stars, and then I'd suddenly just have a David Halberstam book uh, on my shelf. And I just began reading those, and I think he had put some George Plimpton onto my shelf, and I decided at a young age that I wanted to just be George Plimpton when I grew up. And so I think that was one of my earliest... I was probably... Seven or eight, I didn't really know what that meant, but I'd read like Paper Tiger or something like that, I think, and had decided that I liked this idea of participating in sports and getting the the stuffing beat out of you by a heavyweight or going to making a fool of yourself (laughs) and like the. Detroit training camp and that really appealed to me at a young age. So I think that that must've been when I decided that I wanted to write. And then it took a lot of twists and turns from that point, but the, I kind of had this, this Plimpton esque career in front of me.
0: Lots of twists and turns are, uh, <laughs> is the way a lot of writers would describe their circuitous route to yeah. becoming a writer. Um, and I often wonder, you know, and, and I've met people, um, probably two hands full of writers who uh, write and publish early and their only desire has ever been to to be a published author and and they just have a singular focus Um, and those people are amazing and they are case studies unto themselves um, but they are the the rare occurrence um, in in writing Um, and you know often wonder is it better um, to to have a little life experience under your belt to collect and maybe you know we're the weird ones that need to do this and and other people are just geniuses because they can just make it up, um, but you know to me it seems like it's a almost a necessity to experience some things and to to have. Uh, you know, to have some mistakes under your belt, if you would, to to get to write from, um, h- how do you feel about about that? Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, I so I went off and I was a lawyer for quite a while, uh, in New York.
0: As one does.
1: And yeah, it was <laughs> it was a mistake in a lot of ways. Just <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, I think right from the beginning, I knew that I didn't want to really practice law. But once you've made the mistake of entering law school and accumulating a fortune of debt, there's really no choice but to practice law and to practice a sort of very particular and, you know, to me, not super appealing style of law because that's the most lucrative form that you can do and pay off your debts as quickly as possible if you're able. And so I kind of had this odd experience where I did sort of just have to buckled down and be a lawyer for a while. And on the one hand, I knew that that I wanted to get out of it and write. But on the other, in retrospect, it was this incredible experience where I got to sort of live in New York for years and be exposed to the way that very particular society works. And as a lawyer, you're sort of allowed into all these rooms that you wouldn't be allowed into otherwise and exposed to people's dreams and desires and corruption and all these great things that later can become sort of inspiration, if not fodder for a good crime novel. And I I do, I love crime fiction. It's not, I think like you said, this, this book doesn't fit neatly necessarily as a crime novel, but I was reading when I was writing it, I think there was a a giant stack of Elmore Leonard on my desk and there's probably one behind me right now. And that was kind of my guiding light on this. And I think without having had that, sort of begrudging experience as a lawyer. I'm not sure I could have written about that, these kinds of particular underbelly worlds without having had that. So I'm glad I did. You know, I I would I would like to have been one of those people who could have just been, you know, a literary sensation at 21. But yeah, I can't imagine what I would have <laughs> written about. It. I just didn't
0: have didn't have the experience, right? So so you practiced law um when you what what was the catalyst that that gave you the um uh it sounds like you all always had the desire to to leave and to pursue writing but what what was the thing that that kind of pushed you over the edge that uh because you, you didn't immediately start writing novels you have no. been working yeah, so in I, the book industry i wanted to
1: do it i don't know that i would have had the courage to do it except that i met my wife who was a lawyer at the same firm in new york and who also wanted to to do something else. She's still a lawyer, but she wanted to practice in the human rights world and a different kind of international law. And I think that we sort of were drawn together in part by wanting to not be corporate lawyers uh, for a while
0: here anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so honestly, we both just, we, we gave ourselves a goal uh, to once we'd paid off our, our debts to save up a certain amount of money that, we felt like we could kind of roll the dice on these other careers that we wanted to to undertake and the day i hit that number was the day i left the law firm and my wife shortly after and then i think we the day that, the day that we hit that for her we brought suitcases into the law firm cleared out offices and went straight to JFK Airport in New York and moved to Paris and lived in Paris and that was you know another fulfillment of a very particular kind of dream that we'd both been harboring for a long time and that was where we kind of started. She was uh, doing some work uh, for an international body at the time and could do it out of Paris and I got to have you know stroll along the river every day and have my sort of bohemian fantasy of living in Paris and writing it was great
0: wow that i would only imagine that 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 flight across the atlantic um had to be full of excitement and a little bit of terror
1: yeah it was it was because you're leaving behind this career which has a lot of certainty to it and you know it's easy to get trapped in it even you know and it can be very satisfying a lot of there were actually there was an older gentleman uh Lewis Begley, who's just you know an immensely talented novelist who's been you know nominated for National Book Awards and all that, who was a lawyer at the same law firm as I was, a partner who very happily practiced and wrote award-winning novels in his I don't, whatever spare time he could find. But I did not have. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that, so I had to cut ties completely, and it was terrifying. Yeah, uh, but I got to do it with my wife, and I was a little younger, and we had our savings, and you know we weren't. We didn't have children yet, and it's the time in your life when you can throw caution to the wind a little bit and move to Paris oh, if you Yeah. You're able.
0: yeah. Um, how did you get involved with Crime Reads?
1: That was later. So I was back in the U.S., I think, at that point, and I'd been doing some sort of literary journalism, I guess, for lack of a better word, around New York, and I knew some people. I knew Lit Hub, uh, the website Lit Hub Literary Hub had started... And they had this kind of kooky idea at the beginning that they were going to hire a sports editor to do basically sort of Plimpton esque, George Plimpton style features (laughs) of literary writers doing these pieces about sports. Like we would send a a novelist to an arm wrestling competition and she would write, you know, 5,000 words about that. And they must, they had heard through some people that I was, into interested in sports in particular. And I think I must've written some sports stuff for them. So anyway, they, we met at Old Town Bar on 17th or 18th street in New York uh, and hashed out a deal and I became the sort of sports editor at the outset of Lit Hub. And then we quickly realized that nobody, there's a reason why there aren't a lot of those old fashioned Sports Illustrated 5,000 word pieces, like long form literary sports pieces anymore because they just <laughs> there was a limited audience for them uh and yeah you know the five or six we put together were awesome but uh we we realized the need to sort of change course a little bit and at that time they were hatching an idea to launch something similar to LitHub but that focused on the world of crime fiction mysteries and thrillers for which there's a, a massive and fervent audience and readership out oh, there yeah. oh, i was sort of I was the resident crime fiction fan. So I, I threw up my I could I could read the read the weather vein and know which way it was going on long form sports and decided I would do crime fiction instead. So I, I ended up <laughs> I ended up in that area in, instead of the sports, sadly.
0: Well, well, even though the, the sports story, it, to me, that sounds fascinating. That sounds, but I'm, you know, that's probably me and four other people that, that you know. Me too. I still love that it. Had to feel, it the best. That had to feel like a full circle moment, didn't it? Yeah, it did. You it, know, from, it, from being a kid who fantasized about that to then. No, it was a dream job. And and conversations guys, about it.
1: Yeah, it was. And one of the guys um who is who launched Lit Hub, Terry McDonald, had been. The editor of Sports Illustrated for those years that I was reading it, and so it was a particular thrill to get to sit down and think that we were going to recreate even a, a glimmer of this. It was it was it was great while it lasted, and uh, it was fun to sort of recruit my my friends from the literary world in New York to go off and do have some strange adventures and write about them. But we just didn't get to do too much of it before it became very apparent that this wasn't going to make money. That's so funny.
0: So. So crime uh, stole your heart, as it as it were. Um, yeah. You first off, um, you know, crime fiction uh, is and and thrillers and and sort of everything that kind of gravitates toward those genres um, is having a real moment right now. Um, and you you look at um, you know as someone that uh, I, I talk to a lot of publicists and um, and. A lot of those types of stories get sent my way and and then you walk into the bookstore and you know you read the um, the bestseller list and and these are always at the top um, it's, it's it's really having a moment right now, but then you you kind of rewind back to the uh, to the 90s to the 80s, to the 70s and you realize that that these types of stories have always kind of been having a moment. Um, what do you think it is about? those types of stories that resonate with readers so much and have for so long. I mean, I think they're entertaining.
1: They're entertaining as hell and people want to be entertained. And when they come to a book, uh, I think they want that too. So there's at least this skeleton of genre over that, that there's a type of story that we know that we're going to be engaged by and sucked into. There's, an inherent mystery in all these things and a reader is going to want to turn the pages to solve the mystery in some regard. Even if, you know, like my my books don't necessarily have a traditional mystery in them in any real sense. But I do think that there's a natural propulsion or momentum to a story that has that kind of crime and mystery element to it. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's storytelling that goes back to the beginning of the beginning of time is a reason why these stories have been around not just popular this century but last century all centuries because we want to see people with the highest stakes and you know the death and dreams and ambition and tragedy going through so i think that you know they naturally lend themselves to these types of stories and there's something in our dna that kind of responds to that those beats of storytelling so to me it's also just i mean i love the form because then you can kind of Do with it whatever you want and I think there is you have a certain confidence that the reader is going to be engaged because you've put the work into creating a plot that they might care about and want to advance through to find out what happens next and once you have that certainty uh, you can feel quite liberated as a writer. I, I find it very freeing because you can do all sorts of Strange and peculiar and fun and exuberant and odd things in between and you've still got you've still got something tethered uh, that keeps you that keeps you tied to that story. And I, f- I find that really liberating. I don't know how you, you feel about it, but to me that there is something very freeing about that because I, I know that I've got that story and so I can do all these other eccentric things around it.
0: It, it's also kind of like when you talk to horror writers and and your books have right. nothing to do with horror. So to, I don't want the audience to, to misunderstand no, what, yeah. what I'm saying. Um, but the, um, you know, uh, horror writers are are usually some of the nicest, most <laughs> yeah. genial, engaging people that you'll ever meet. And they're nothing like the stories that they tell. Um but you know um, that there's something about reading something that scares you, but but reading it from the comfort of your favorite reading chair, where you're home and you're safe and nothing bad is going to happen, but allowing your imagination to go there, and there's, there's something primal about experiencing those feelings. Without being in danger, and and crime fiction kind of touches on a little bit of that. Uh, you know, there, there's something about exploring the the darkness of humanity without having to be dark. Uh, you know, maybe that's kind of oversimplifying, but but the, there's there's some kinship there in in that type of storytelling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There and there's that same kind of vicarious adventure to it, and I think both of those types of books, <clears throat> as you're describing. They seem really conducive to, you know, curling up on that couch when you're alone on a summer night or a winter night, and kind of you know diving into yourself and uh, reading the story. There's something really idyllic about that kind of setting, even if you're reading about the most horrific, unsettling things. There, there's a comfort to
0: them somehow. Right, right. So you're you're working in the in the world of publishing, um, but, um you your you published a book last year uh, that was your first published novel um mm-hmm. what what kind of got you what, what was the the first idea for for that book and and when did you realize that this was going to be the the thing that that launched your your fiction writing career yeah i think i had been kind of
1: dabbling for a long time on a different type of novel something uh maybe a little bit more somber and without any story and something that was a little bit uh, just a different kind of novel and at some point along the way discovered a different kind of love for crime fiction i think i've probably told the story to a lot of people but i was wandering through some stacks at the center for fiction in new york which is kind of private library and i came across walter mosley's devil in a blue dress and just was completely captivated for the next eight hours and didn't move out of my very comfortable seat while I was reading it. And I think that kind of opened my idea, my eyes to the sorts of things that crime fiction could do. And around that time, uh, I'd been trying for a while to write a novel and kind of giving things up and just not really doing it to my satisfaction. And So never finishing anything or never showing anything to anyone, kind of just quietly, secretly plugging away at these things. And At that time, my wife uh, became pregnant, and we realized we're going to have a child. And I think I'm 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 curious if you've spoken to other authors who've had that impetus as well. But suddenly to put a clock on this kind of aimless dream that I'd had for a while of wanting to be a writer that had no particular pressure to it, and now I kind of felt like, for whatever reason, I felt like I had nine months to write a novel and for it to stick and be the novel that I was proud of and that could published and if i didn't i was going to go back to being a lawyer uh and try to you know do that To i guess i had this idea that i needed some stability or finances to to pay for my child's life you know there, there's <laughs> that's just the reality of it so anyway i put this kind of clock on it and i've always kind of worked there's
0: nothing like children to solidify the adulthood
1: yeah. that you're in it is right and it i i like working under a timeline and pressure kind of in that sense. And I just knocked out this novel that I was really thrilled with. And uh, it it was sort of, I think my wife and I were watching a lot of movies late at night and working through our anxieties in the lead up to this uh, birth. And we, we'd watch Chinatown one night and I just had this idea where Chinatown was kind of seeping into other aspects of my life and altering my vision of it, and that kind of became the novel, the story of a, a washed out lawyer in New York who starts, who finds that he's kind of caught up in the plot to Chinatown, circa two thousand five, and I was able to just get the draft done before my daughter was born and (laughs) things worked out great. So it was, I'm I'm glad that I didn't have to go back to being a lawyer. I guess
0: both of these novels uh, are noir-ish um they they have a noir sensibility with while being firmly rooted in the the here and now the the, the present of, of it all um do is there is there a certain um thing that you're a certain feeling that you're writing for is, is there are you channeling um Anything in particular that that makes your writing come out with this sort of feeling. And I say feeling because it's not anything that you can necessarily put your finger on, but it is absolutely communicated on the page. And it's one of these ethereal things. You know, when when we talk about writing, we talk a lot about the woo woo stuff that, you know, that you can only talk about in these types of conversations. But it's absolutely true. You know, you can't put your finger on it yet. There it is. I'm
1: glad that you can feel it because it, to me, I mean, there's all these different components of the writing that one could value over the other's, you know, story or character. And I, I think for me, if I'm being honest, you know, I'd like to think I value all of them and put time and effort into all of them, but atmosphere is the most important piece of it for me. And it's the piece that draws me in as the writer. So I hope that it's drawing in readers as well. But I think that I always kind of try to, put this trick on myself where I try to th- imagine that I'm in say just like a dark bar somewhere and you know I'm stuck in a town where I don't know anybody in particular and uh, I've got a bottle of wine or something some a nice whiskey that somebody's brought over and I'm expected to tell a story to somebody else in the bar and to keep their attention and I try to kind of channel some of that into the voice I'm using as a writer where I'm imagining that there is this person who whose interest needs to be captured and captivated in this particular setting. So I think that that kind of lends naturally to a noir atmosphere, uh, but it also kind of is, I think that I don't ever want it to feel like I'm just telling a story where it's A to B and I have particular beats that need to be hit it's more like if you're actually talking to someone all sorts of ambiguities and questions would arise and you might take diversions and you might ask them questions about their life and that you know turn the tables on them and it's not just a straight story that would be told so i'd like to think of it as kind of a running conversation in a dark bar in a town where i don't know anybody and i i've got this one person whose attention i want to keep
0: that that is uh I'm so glad you shared that because that going into the writing with that mindset absolutely will influence the way that you tell the story. And I've I've never thought about that before, but that's that is a great um, trick, uh, if you will, to kind of get in that storytelling mode. I love that. And like just conversations here, like what you and I are doing right
1: now. If I were being perfectly natural with it, I think there's still some lawyer piece of me that just wants to. Uh, run a deposition and just ask the other person questions. So my natural mode here would to just be ask you endless questions and try to transform that into our, our own joint story. But I, I just, I like conversation. I like that back and forth yeah. and I try to put that into the writing too.
0: Yeah. Well, your dialogue definitely reflects that. It, it, it feels like real conversation and not, and it, it's such a balance because uh, if you, if you were to record actual conversation there's very yeah. it's very broken it's right. very uh there there're a lot of uh things that are communicated and things that are sort of communicated but the interpretation between the two people factors into that a lot and and a lot of times that doesn't translate to the written word very well you know because you you, you say oh your your dialogue is just like conversation. Well, no, it's not because right. conversation on page is terrible. Um, but there is <laughs> yeah. a a fine line to splitting, you know, what what we perceive as real conversation, uh, you know, versus th- the way it really is. That that's a real art to translating that. Yeah, it's so fun and interesting, right? And I think you know writers
1: who try to write good dialog all I'll discover this, but it is. you're somewhere in the realm between what could realistically be exchanged between two people and what is insightful and evocative and interesting to read on the page. Uh, And so I feel like if you really care about dialogue, you're sort of forever honing that dialogue to try to strike the exact right balance between the, the, those two poles, and it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I mean, the dialogue is my favorite. It's my favorite part of it. It it just makes the story kind of sing, and all the characters feel real, and they get their chance to kind of step onto the stage for a while.
0: Absolutely. Um, I read something about you or I saw it in an interview I can't remember where and please correct me uh if I get this wrong um but you found um something of your fathers uh one time that was uh had to do with a previous life um can, can you <laughs> yeah. kind of tell some of that story yeah
1: so um i think a lot of this new book the stolen coast uh there's a father character in it who is uh an ex-spy who has returned to the to the states and is raising his son in massachusetts and kind of runs this business where he helps uh fugitives escape the country sort of and start over with a new identity uh my father was a, a bookseller a career bookseller he managed a bookstore in massachusetts at a university i worked there a lot with him and have very fond memories of it and I think my first book was about the world of booksellers and noir and so a lot of people ask me that I think and now this new book they're suddenly uh, surprised to find out that he had a career in intelligence before he was a bookseller and I this was something that I kind of I knew for a long time at one point when I was young I think the story you're probably referencing is I found a box of passports uh, that were sort of hidden (laughs) Uh, And I opened them up and kind of spent a very baffling hour quietly looking through a box full of passports and various visas and documents that were all my father, but with different names and slightly (laughs) altered uh, identities. He'd have a beard and some or shaggy hair and things like that Uh, and kind of trying to understand what that meant. And so I think like a lot of people who worked in intelligence, he was... He had been trained very rigorously not to discuss it with anyone uh and that was kind of the baseline and then over the years i think he became gradually more comfortable sharing pieces of it because it essentially these were his formative years he went off he was drafted into the military and then recruited out of the military to be trained in intelligence and then sent off to to sort of live out his 20s around the mediterranean uh doing intelligence work. Um, and you know, that is such an odd way to grow up and to meet the world that I think, you know, that that was a pivotal part of his story. And so to the extent that he was able to sort of communicate it to me, we did. And I obviously, if you have a father who was a spy, you want to hear all the stories you can, right? And so I would oh, yeah. try to try them out of him as much as I could. And he's still around and still reluctantly telling me pieces of it. Uh, today but i i wanted to pour a lot of that into this novel because i think when people do find this out about me inevitably they want to know what was it like to grow up with a father who had been a spy and there were a lot of odd little spy mm-hmm. games between, between us he used to I, he likes to tell the story once that he he bugged my room when i was about five or six and then it was like a two-way thing and he would speak to me pretending to be god giving me instructions to behave <laughs> you know, obey my father. And I just kind of quietly accepted this and had this conversation with what I had deduced was, was God talking to me and kept it to myself. I just kind of played it close to the vest and tell anyone that this was going on until he got freaked out that this was carrying on too long. And we, he finally (laughs) showed me what, what he was doing, but there were all these other little things he would kind of, you know, he always seemed to catch me at everything. There's no way you can sneak out on your dad when, He's, uh, you know, a, tra- a trained operative, just, there's no way to, sneak. so it was kind of liberating because I just assumed growing up that my dad knew every bad thing that I was doing and he basically did. And we just kind of, we, we figured it out together and it was great. I think he was the best emotionally adjusted former intelligence person you could possibly imagine because he's <laughs> he was a great, I had a great dad and he still is. And, uh, and he's very graciously allowed me to tell some of his stories in this book.
0: That is so funny, um, Jack Betancourt. Your protagonist uh, in in the new book um, f- finds places for fugitives, um, and I, I I asked you to to share that story because it does kind of seep its way into this book, not in a direct way, but um, there are a lot of things in the story that are obviously kind of flavored by growing up with with a father who you know had that sort of connection um what was what was the idea to to have a character that helped kind of bring people in and help them disappear uh, that sort of thing it's
1: something i've always been fascinated with i assume because of my father and the upbringing that i had but we we used to play this game I, i play with my wife now where whenever we go somewhere new we like to think about what sort of pipeline, informal pipeline we would use if we needed to escape the jurisdiction. If we were falsely accused of a crime, needed to go on the lam, how do you quietly get out of that jurisdiction? So it's always been this thing in my mind and it kind of pieced together with, I grew up in this town in Massachusetts that I I found out when I was a lawyer that it had a reputation locally, at least as a place to go to kind of lay low and use as a way station if you were getting out of town, if you needed to get into the wind and, you know, evade law enforcement for various reasons that kind of get worked into the book in a very romanticized version that was true and so i kind of combined a few of these elements into creating this this town that for me at least was sort of a vehicle for romance and intrigue and it kind of felt to me like a sort of contemporary casablanca this this last exit where fugitives and dreamers and hustlers and everybody goes when they they've run out of road and they just want to get out of the country and start a new life somewhere else this is the town they go to uh and it was once i had that idea for a town that exists like that it was just too fun not to to write a whole novel about it
0: (laughs) my wife and i play scrabble together and that's that's a (laughs) a very together yeah you just you know that's that's a very different uh uh you know sort of thing than planning our escape. But you know all
1: right. Well now you know where to come. If you ever need to plan your escape, you you call up me and my wife and we we know all the extradition treaties. So just there
0: you go. And if you're looking for a triple word score, you know, look exactly (laughs) the road Um, runs both ways. (laughs) Um the the other um guilty pleasure that I absolutely love in novels is I love a heist novel. There there's there's something About a heist that um, just—I don't know—it's—I just absolutely love it. And you find a way to work yet another um, subgenre into a story that already is bristling with fun. Um, What was the idea to to include this uh, into the novel?
1: Well, I mean, I just love heist stories too. Right, heist books, heist movies, and they've got all these beats that are just so much fun. Like when the beginning of a heist when you're sort of assembling the team and you're going to need a safe cracker and you're going to need a getaway right. driver. And the idea of getting the team together is just a tremendous amount of fun. Or after you're done the heist and then everybody gets together for this celebration that turns out to be premature. and you know, they're, they're dancing and they're drinking and they're, All these different beats and then also just the procedural aspect of trying to work out an overly intricate heist because it has to be overly intricate if it's going to be really right right. it's got to be 12 steps too many uh and so i just love those stories i love i grew up reading and watching them and what we were talking about before with genre where once you kind of pick out a piece of the genre you're free to just create within it and have fun with it essentially I love heist stories and I just thought how much fun would it be to get to do my version of Rafifi and get to put just a couple of characters together and I had a sort of central romantic uh, story to it and I I always liked the idea of a heist or a caper as a kind of stand in for a courtship where every step of the way along the heist the planning was another kind of piece of the another step in the dance between two characters. So I, I wanted to make a high story that was essentially, you know, two people who are kind of falling in love, but can't trust one another and decide to, to
0: pull off a robbery anyway. <laughs> I love it. Um, if we know anything about publishing um, this book, uh, the stolen coast has been off of your desk for quite a yeah. while now, yeah. probably, um, you know, the, the nature of the beast. Um, when, when, when you turned in your final edits and, you know, you're just kind of waiting for, for the machinery of publishing to turn, what, what have you been working on lately?
1: I have another book that I'm pretty far into, but immediately after I thought I was going to sort of put this completely aside and move on to something new. But then we had the good fortune of selling the, the TV rights for it. And um, the production company, uh, agreed to bring me on as the the writer of the pilot for for that so before before the writers Guild strike began I had just started work on on that project so it's kind of
0: nice. it's, it's, a,
1: it's a whole other experience trying to imagine you know a, a contained heist story within this novel how it might be built out into a TV series uh, and that's been great fun because on really this is just what it comes down to is the town that i'm writing about in this strange kind of atmosphere of fugitives and everybody leaving the country and everybody's got a con against one another but they're also living as neighbors in this beach town in massachusetts it's just a fun place to spend time i love it and so i've gotten to spend more time there and right now i'm kind of chomping at the bit because during the the writer strike you know I, you can't work on any of this so uh, i'm i'm looking forward to getting to dive back into that world once the we get a fair contract on that but in the meantime i've just been writing my next book which is also something set in coastal massachusetts so i get to spend a little time there on my, in in a different way i love it i love it i
0: cannot wait to to, to see this on the screen this is going to be amazing um, the, the stolen coast is available everywhere. Now go visit your local bookstore, grab a copy today. If you don't have a local bookstore, we'll put links to it, uh, where you can pick it up from Amazon, uh, in the show notes of this episode. Dwyer, um, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Um, but if folks are just discovering you and want to follow along and dig into all the great stuff that's going on with you, is there a place online that's best for them to, to, to connect with you and, and follow along?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm on Twitter, uh, Dwyer Murphy. And then I run, as you mentioned, uh, this website, Crime Reads, where we're covering new crime fiction every day. Uh, and you can just go to Penguin Random House has a, a page for all these books. Uh, it's put out by Viking Books, and you can find it there under, if you search for Dwyer Murphy's Stolen Coast, I think it'll come up. And uh, I'm around. I, can't, I love talking about this, so it really... It's a pleasure to get to chat with you about it, and to get to chat with a writer about writing is always—it's always fun. So, thank you so much for having yeah. me.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I read the the arc of this book um a couple of months ago, I guess, and now that it's uh, released, I uh, I grabbed the audio from Audible, and uh, my wife and I are going on a road trip this weekend, and so I'm going to listen to the audio again. I'm super excited. Uh, to, so the uh, audio is great. Yeah, great. I, I, I hope they have that, I the hope story all enjoyed. over again.
1: That's a lot of pressure. I don't want to ruin your road trip. That sounds that's very nice. I hope I hope it works out.
0: Well, this this will be my wife's introduction, uh, so we'll see how it goes. But All right.
1: A lot of pressure. <laughs> you know you got Scrabble to fall back on, but I, I don't want to interrupt that. It sounds great. There you
0: go. Well, um, go pick up The Stolen Coast. Uh, we'll put links to it, as we said. Dwyer, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features, That allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.